glad you made it because I'm here to encourage you guys today. This has been a, a book, a series in the book of Hebrews that has been a, a lot of encouragement from start to finish. And all the more is this exhortation, is this call to action for us as we get to the end of the book. Let's open up to Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Last week, Austin began Hebrews chapter 12, the study there, talking about this life of faith that we're called to, trusting in Jesus, enduring against all hardship and suffering, running the race marked out before us. And if we encounter resistance, if we encounter suffering and trials and challenges, we, can, we should consider that to be the spiritual resistance training that is only going to make us stronger. It's only going to be for our good and ultimately for the glory of God. Now, as we move into the second half of Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be left with an impression now of the finish line. We've been called to run the race, but now the writer wants to leave us as he's closing out this letter with an impression of the finish line, an impression of the kingdom of God. I don't know if you guys have ever wanted to make an impression on someone maybe in the context of a job interview. You're going in for a job interview and you want to leave an impression upon those who might potentially hire you. And of course, what do we mean when we're saying we want to leave an impression? Well, it means we want to leave something with them where they actually consider us. They're reminded of something about us. They think about us after we've left the room. We leave something with them, right? And hopefully it's not that we're the most awkward individual in the entire world, but that, you know, we're competent and we're skilled and they should hire us. It leaves an impression. We leave something behind that recollection. Certainly the news reports and the weather reports about this tropical storm have left an impression on people. You know, we've been on the front page. We're famous, guys. The front page of Fox News, of CNN, of this historic storm that is hitting us right now. So much of an impression has it left on people that, I don't know about you guys, are you getting calls from long-distance relatives right now checking in on you, making sure you have enough provisions, that you're safe, right? It's because of the impression, what is being left with people as they consider the reports. So also, the writer here of Hebrews wants to leave an impression with these Jewish Christians, of the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law that they left behind and what it represents, as well as what they've stepped into in Jesus, the new covenant and the kingdom of God. And that impression should be something that far surpasses what they left behind. Let's read that together. As we start reading, we're not going to get a lot of context for the imagery and what the writer is talking about. He's starting by describing Mount Sinai in the context of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and these terms and imagery. And then he's going to move, obviously, to the kingdom of God. So as we pick up, these Jewish Christians would know what he's talking about. We might not know as much. I just wanted to make that explicit. Verse 18 of chapter 12. The verses will be on the screen. The writer says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. 
you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pause there this morning in our reading. As our reading began, we're being led to experience these impressions, and we have envisioned for us, pictured for us, two different covenants, the Mosaic Covenant, the New Covenant in Jesus, and they're pictured with the imagery of the two mountains that are representative of these covenants, that of the Old Testament in Mount Sinai and that of the New Testament and the New Covenant on Mount Zion. Mount Sinai, for most of us, we understand this to be the place in the Old Testament where Moses met with God and received the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Covenant was put into effect. Maybe you guys don't know what the imagery around Mount Zion is. Mount Zion literally refers to the mount upon which Jerusalem and the temple sat. That is the capital city of God's people historically, right? And it's a glorious place, Jerusalem, but what's envisioned here is not the earthly Mount Zion, but the heavenly Mount Zion, the heavenly city, the kingdom of God that's been promised all throughout the scriptures and that we are moving toward its fulfillment of through Jesus. And when you set these two visions, these two mountains alongside each other, they impress you with their meaning. And the writer is basically presenting to us, which mountain do you want to head toward? What destination do you want to move to? What reality do you want to live out of? The impression that you're left with in Mount Sinai or the impression that you're left with in Jesus on Mount Zion? You know, starting in verse 18, he begins to describe Sinai just as it's pulled from the Old Testament. He doesn't doctor it up. He doesn't Photoshop anything into the image of Mount Sinai. He just explains it as it really was. And Mount Sinai was really, really genuinely terrifying. You see, Sinai was where the living God revealed his might, his power, his holiness before a rebellious and sinful people. The writer tells us, as it says in Exodus 19, that there was a terrifying earthquake, that there was fire, that there was smoke billowing up from the mountain. It was a place characterized by doom and gloom. You know, I know we're all comfortable in the environment of like, let's say a little bit of rain out the window, sipping a coffee, like that's really nice. Like, I think we all like that change of pace from time to time. But how do you feel being in the environment of a life-threatening natural disaster? What's that like? Have you guys ever been in the environment of a life-threatening natural disaster? I personally, growing up in Arizona and then spending the rest of my adult life in California, I have not encountered that many life-threatening natural disasters. Now, some will say, but you grew up in Arizona. How do you survive 120-degree heat? 
That sounds like a life-threatening natural disaster. But my response is air conditioning. I never went out in 120 degree heat. No one in Arizona does. You tolerate it just fine because I experienced 73 degrees constantly inside. So no natural disasters there in California. There's the threat of the big one, right? But all I felt every now and then is a little shimmy. You know, in the over 10 years I've been here, I've never really experienced a real earthquake. But I will say, okay, four years in Kansas, I did experience the tornado warning. My first time was when I was a freshman in college. I was doing my laundry across the street from our dorm. And as I'm doing my laundry, the tornado sirens, the warning sirens begin to blare. And I was the only one in there. I think it's because I didn't know the forecast. Everyone else did. But I was enjoying the fact that I was alone at the laundromat because then you don't have to wait for anyone else to finish up their load, move their stuff, come back. You know, you got the whole place to yourself. So I'm going to finish my work. You know, well, what, what are these sirens? Like, I'm inside. I'm safe. Well, apparently those in the know at the dorm knew I was unaccounted for and they heard that I was at the laundromat. So they went to go find me. And my resident assistant, the guy over our floor, came to me and said, what are you doing? And I replied, literally, I'm, I'm doing my laundry. He said, get over to the basement of the dorms right now. There's a tornado that's headed our direction. And I said, but I gotta finish my laundry. It's in the machines right now. Leave it, leave it. Like this is an individual who's from the area and understands what a life-threatening natural disaster can do to a building. It doesn't matter if you're on the first floor of the building. You know, you're not safe in a real tornado. And so we went into the basement and sure enough, I didn't ever encounter a tornado up close. It moved a few miles outside of town, but everyone was telling their war stories of hearing the tornadoes coming close, sounding like a freight train about to take over. Now guys, Mount Sinai was like three or four life-threatening natural disasters all at one time for the Israelites. And what does a natural disaster create in us? It reveals in us our vulnerability, our pending mortality, right? So also the old covenant, so also Mount Sinai, so also so much of the human religions of the world remind us of the same thing. Our spiritual vulnerability, and the impending judgment of God. It leaves us with that impression of doom and gloom. And that judgment is due, according to the Old Covenant, because of the spiritual distance created between us and God because of our sin. That's what Mount Sinai represents. Not a place of access to God, but it represents sort of like the spiritual tape measure that measures for us just how far human beings are from a holy and perfect God. You know, just, just think, us in our weakness, being one of those Israelites with our imperfection and our sin, who would think to traverse up the mountain of smoke and fire and earthquake to go before the all-powerful creator God? None of us would think, okay, I'm gonna step right into that, and in fact, Verse 19 reminds us that if even an animal touched the mountain, they were to be put to death. Nothing could come near the presence of an all-powerful and pure God. And that's what so much of 
human religion impresses upon us. That's so much of what the old covenant impresses upon us. Distance. Distance. Even the structures of human religion convey distance between us and God. I don't know how many of you have actually stepped into an ancient church, an old church, a traditional church. I don't know how many of you have stepped into like just even one of the world religions, an old temple. What are you struck with when you enter into a temple or you enter into an ancient church? You're, you're usually struck with how tall it is, how high the ceilings are, right? The room itself is supposed to convey the transcendence of God, how small you and I are and how massive God is. It's all to convey distance. You'll experience this in all the ancient world religions. You'll experience this in some of the ancient traditions of Christianity. The building itself conveys the distance. The spiritual leaders, the priests, the monks convey the spiritual distance, right? Oftentimes in ancient Christian traditions, as well as in all the ancient religions of the world, you look at the spiritual leaders and they are drawn away from society. They're cloistered off. They live in a commune just with themselves away from everybody else. They dress in a way that nobody else dresses, right? They abstain from all the things that are common to humanity. And what does that communicate to all of us? Well, this is a spiritual person and they're close to God and you're nothing like them. So are you close to God? You're far from God. He's distant from you. The traditions and practices of ancient Christianity and all, all the other world religions, they are ancient practices and traditions thousands of years old that we miss the relevance of, we don't even understand anymore, and everything comes together to say, God is somewhere out of your reach. He is unobtainable. He might be near to somebody, but he's certainly not near to you. But in human religion, that's what you and I would prefer, distance. The Israelites, when they encountered the uncensored power of God, in his voice, they couldn't even take it any longer. It was too much for them to bear in their weakness. Kind of reminds me of the times I've like turned on the car and one of my kids has already turned up the volume to max and you're not ready for it. I don't know if anyone's ever encountered this. Maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse drives your car and they like to jam out and that's not really your habit and you turn on the car and it's like blaring in your ears. Remember VBS, man, 100 kids in a small room. We heard one voice and how loud that was. Imagine 100 of those kids. I can't hear you doing one of those things. Like, it was like blaring in my ears. That was the experience of the Israelites going, man, we can't handle the uncensored, unfiltered power of God. We don't want to hear it any longer. And there are so many people because of their experience of knowing God or their experience in church or their experience of pastors, they're saying, man, I can't even listen to it anymore. I can't take it because it's all the characterization of the doom and the gloom and the distance that just grates on people and ultimately what it produces in much of human religion and certainly in the old covenant is this response of fear. That's why people can't listen to it any longer. Man, being in those ancient traditions, being in these other world religions, all I get all the time is doom and gloom and distance and fear. The fear of what's gonna happen to me after this life. I mean, in the various world religions, people are living their lives thinking, am I gonna be reincarnated up or am I gonna be reincarnated down the chain? Like. Can you imagine that that's like a normal thought you have in your daily life? This concern of like, after this life, I'm gonna either move up the chain and I'm not sure if I am, 
I don't know what's above human in the chain. I haven't researched that. But think about all the levels beneath human. Think about all the different forms of life that you've experienced. And they're literally going through their life thinking, did what I do merit me to move up in the chain or down the chain? And that's a real thought, a real fear that people have bred into them through their ancient religion. People are wondering, have my good deeds outweighed my bad deeds? Have I done enough good things today to outnumber all the things I've done wrong? And if that equation doesn't line up, if I've missed a few things in my map, who knows where I'm gonna end up? People are wondering, they're racking their mind going, did I meditate enough in my life? Did I detach enough from this human experience in my life that I'm gonna achieve some form of enlightenment? And they live with that fear. I may or may not achieve that enlightenment. You know, some people are thinking, did the crystals work? Did the diet work? Right? Did the positive thinking yield the result that it's supposed to do, or am I not thinking positively enough every day? And there's this constant fear. Some women, because of their spiritual tradition, are wondering if their husband is going to call their name in the afterlife. Because if they didn't measure up as a wife, they might not get their name called out to them. They might not join with their husband into eternity. Some people are wondering, did their lottery number come up? Did God predetermine that their fate was already sealed for hell or heaven before they were even born? It's all this fear, this constant fear that these ancient religions, these world religions leave and press upon their followers. It's like according to human religion, life is like one giant game of the floor is lava. I don't know if you guys ever played this as a kid. Netflix has a really bad show it created based on this like game we would play. We'd take the cushions off the couch and you'd extend them across the room apart from each other and you'd move from cushion to cushion and if you fell, then you, you died in the lava. But, but this life in, in, in ancient traditions, in the old covenant, it's not like a game of the floor is lava. It's like life is the floor is lava, but the floor is actually lava. It actually will result in your death and your judgment. And the only path that you're given is this thousand mile long slack line that you have to balance on in the darkness. And on all sides, there's this constant threat that you're gonna fall. And if you fall, there's gonna be eternal repercussions. Even Moses, right? He's the chosen mediator between God and man. When he was selected to go up on the mountain, to enter into that fire and that smoke, to walk that line, he came down from the experience and says, I, I'm left with this impression, I am, terrified. That's where human religion leaves us in fear because we don't know whether or not we'll have done it right or rather we know we won't have done it right. But that is not the new covenant we have come to know in Jesus, a mountain of doom and gloom, but rather we've come to the mountain of the city of the living God, to Mount Zion, the spiritual kingdom of God. And it's a contrasting impression in every imaginable way from the old covenant and from all other human religions. It's not a place of gloom, it's a place of joy. In fact, we've come to thousands upon thousands of angels, a choir of angels in joyful praise. I mean, that, that's the impression that we're left with in the kingdom of God. Thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful chorus. Very different scene than Mount Sinai where there's a trumpet blast that you gotta close your ears, you can't stand here. 
Like guys, I don't know if you've ever actually experienced the sound of a choir, or maybe you've gone to a musical, you know, and you've heard the sound of like a well-done musical. I'm not talking about your local community center, your neighbor's there, he's performing, and you're doing your duty to just show up and like support him. Now I'm talking like professional, quality, dozens, hundreds of acapella voices in a choir singing. I don't care if you love punk rock, I don't care if you're a metalhead, respect the choir, right? Like, it's a universal human thing. When you sit in the presence of people performing like that, you get to a place of awe. You get to a place of amazement. That is the impression, the message of Jesus. The gospel message leads on every single one of us. It's the choir of thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Now, many are receiving that message of joy. Many are engaging in that impression because it says in the image here of Mount Zion, people are streaming in to join in the chorus. It's not that this is a place of distance any longer, like all the world religions convey, like all of the old covenant conveyed. The image of Mount Zion, the image of the new covenant, the impression that's left with us through Jesus is communion. They're coming together. It's the church, the assembly, it says, of the firstborn. You get all these people coming together. What does that mean, the church of the firstborn? Well, in the ancient world, the firstborn was the favored child. And all the firstborn in the room say, amen. Yes, yes, yes. We were the favored child because you're the one that's selected to receive the inheritance. You're gonna to have to put up with the most, you're gonna have the most responsibility, but you're gonna get the most benefit in the end. You, you're all going, ah, oh, that's justice. You know, I was the youngest, there's nothing left for me, all right, in the ancient world. I was not the favored child, according to the ancient world. And all of you that have younger siblings, you're like, yeah, and you don't deserve it anyway, because you did nothing. Well, we're called the church of the firstborn because in Jesus, there is no favoritism. We have all received the favor of God. We all have an equal share in the inheritance of heaven, no matter where you fell in the birth order, no matter at what time you gave your life to the Lord. You all in Jesus have your names written in heaven. I think of it like us driving up to the guard gate of Mount Zion, of the heavenly Jerusalem, and you know, you gotta put your name in. You know, is your name on the list? And you say your name and it's given to the guard and, and you, they go away and they look to see if your name is on the list and like the tension of that moment, am I allowed in? But the joy to know that yes, your name is on the list and it's not of anything in your own merit, anything that you've done to get your name on the list except that Jesus has placed your name on the list. And now you have free access, you have entrance, you can experience this communion. It's through his blood that covers our sin that we can approach God. And he's called the judge of all, which is a frightening term. But when the guilty verdict against us is dropped, we're not afraid to approach the judge of all any longer. And that is why this city and covenant represents not fear, like all the other world religions, like the old covenant represented, the impression we're left with is not fear at Mount Zion, it's not fear in the new covenant, it's security. The floor isn't lava. The floor is like gym mats or something. You know, we're walking on this tightrope in life, but it's like there's nets all around us. 
because of the forgiveness, because of the grace that's been afforded us. You know, yes, the path of walking after Jesus is a narrow road. It's very defined. It's different than the rest of the world. The road is narrow, but the provision of grace is wide. It's wide as we walk the narrow road. And you know what? That has nothing to do with anything we do or don't do or will do or won't do like in all the other religions of the world, like in the Old Covenant. It has everything to do with what Jesus has already accomplished. And therefore, that security, that safety net, that grace, it's secure. Therefore, we are secure. This is what you and I have received in Jesus. This is where we are headed. Not doom and gloom, but joy. Not distance with God and with each other, but communion. Not threats and fear, but security and eternal security at that. Now, my question for every single one of us this morning, is that the impression the message of Jesus has left on you? Is that the impression, what I just described, that joy and that communion, that eternal security, is that the impression, the gospel, the message of Jesus has left on your soul, on your heart, on your attitude, on your disposition? Because that's the impression that's being conveyed. Maybe you'd answer that and you say, well, yes, that is what I've received. Maybe you'd say, I think about it and sometimes I'm not so confident in the joy that's there. I'm not so confident in my eternal security and what's going to happen after I die. I'm not so sure that I'm near to God and that I have the capacity to be close and vulnerable with other people. Maybe you say partly so and partly not. You know, a lot of us have had a lot of impressions about the gospel conveyed to us by the people around us. Maybe you've had pastors in your life. You've had people who taught you the Bible. You've had experiences in your family with your parents. You've had churches that you've been to, and they conveyed impressions on you about what it means to be in this new covenant, what it means to receive Jesus and be part of his kingdom. And maybe some of those things are accurate, and maybe some of those things are completely inaccurate. Guys, if I was to represent a song to you like Ave Maria, Ave Maria. First service gave me nothing. They just literally looked at me. They just said, huh? What are you trying to do right now was the look I got. It was a look of distance, fear, and gloom. I'll tell you, that was the impression left. But, but I'm telling you guys, no matter how heartfelt that attempt was, do not judge that song based on my performance of it. Like there is a much better version, Andre Bocelli. Look it up on Spotify. You'll be moved. You'll be moved by the talent, okay, guys? But what I'm saying is there are so many people who have conveyed to us impressions of the gospel, impressions of Jesus, things that we're supposed to take away from what it means to have faith in him. And some of those things have been accurate, and some of those things have been inaccurate, and they've left inaccurate impressions with us. But when you see Mount Zion, as it is, when you see the new covenant and the terms that have been laid out, as it says in the scriptures, when you see Jesus for who he is, the natural byproduct, the impression that you must necessarily be left with is joy, is communion, is security. That doesn't mean that there was nothing valuable about Mount Sinai and the impression we're left with there. 
mean, if you pull the contrast way down in a photo, let's say you're editing a photo and you pull the contrast bar all the way down to nothing, the image just turns white, you can't see anything. You need the contrast in a photo to see the difference, to see the depth. And the old covenant is perfect for that. It reveals the holiness of God. It reveals the weight of our sin. It brings out the difference. It brings out the cost of what Jesus has accomplished so that we can experience the fullness of joy. So that we can understand the communion and the value of that. So we can experience that eternal security. But the writer again commends his audience in verse 25. Now knowing what you know, now seeing the contrast, now having an accurate impression of what Jesus has done for you, do not refuse the voice of him who's given you this invitation. You know, if those who turned away from Moses were judged, what do you think happens to those who turn away from the Son of God? If they didn't step into this old covenant and they were judged, what of you denying the glory of Zion? Through Jesus, God has promised to shake the world once again, and not in the same way as Sinai. He has promised to shake everything away that is created to leave what is only eternal. So the final call of Hebrews 12 is to worship God with reverence and awe and thanksgiving because our God remains, even as he was, a consuming fire. This is one of the most unfortunate references that you could read in the Bible on the same week as the deadliest wildfire in the last hundred years of American history. Because I'm sure all of us have seen the tragic imagery of Lahaina and what a consuming fire can actually do on the earth. And I know that's a harrowing image, but it's an appropriate image because it's one the ancient readers would be familiar with. I mean, when they had a fire break out, it was a consuming fire. What kind of infrastructure did they have in the ancient world to deal with fire? Did they have a classic fire department? Did they have running water and hydrants that they could plug into? No, when a fire hit a town, it was devastating and it was consuming and that was the image they were supposed to be left with. A couple of years after this letter is penned, Rome burned for several days and 70% of the city was destroyed. That's what would happen and that's the image that they're left with. So also God is gonna consume everything that is temporary, everything that is created and leave behind what is eternal. Now the impression that we can be left with is either one of doom and gloom or one of hope. If you're living from Mount Sinai, if you're living in that old covenant, if you're living according to any one of these other world religions, that consuming fire is of judgment. But if you're living from Mount Zion, we believe in the promise that one day all is gonna be consumed with the joy and the communion and the eternal security of the kingdom of God. That's our hope. So I wanna ask you a couple questions this morning for your own time of reflection and prayer. It's questions that I ask myself on the other side of this study. The first thing is this, what is your faith producing in you? What impression is the faith leaving in you right now? When you consider your faith, when you consider your walk with Jesus, are you left with a feeling of doom and gloom? Are you left with a feeling of distance and divide between you and God and other people? Are you left with this feeling of insecurity? I don't know who I am. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm forgiven. I don't know what I'm living my life for. If that's the case, then you've got to figure out, we've got to consider in prayer where the wires are crossed, where the math isn't adding up. 
Because when we have a real vision of Zion, when we have a real vision of Jesus, the natural byproduct is true joy. It's true communion and connection with the Lord and with others. It draws us into connection with others. There is that feeling of security and confidence on which you can live your life. You know, a lot of us, if we're feeling that gloom, if we're feeling that distance with God and other people, if we're feeling that sense of insecurity, it's because we're living based on what we can see, not on what is unseen. What we see is the people around us and how they're behaving and the impressions they're leaving on us, the circumstances of our life and the trials that we're encountering, and we live off those impressions. And so we end up in this place of gloom and we end up in this place of insecurity and we end up in this place of feeling distant. But where are we being rooted? As a pastor, I've encountered a lot of things through the years in ministry and I had ups and downs and ups and downs and without fail, every time I was down, guess where my eyes were looking? on the seen rather than what is unseen. And every time I had a true vision of Jesus, the joy was restored and the communion was there and the security was there. So I ask you, what is your faith producing in you? It is natural to feel gloomy in this life. It is natural to feel some distance. It is natural to feel some insecurity, but we have to take that to Jesus. And every single time we take that to Jesus, and we have a vision of him, he responds to us with that joy. He responds to us with that communion and with that vision of security. So ask before the Lord for the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, what is the faith producing in me right now? And what is it producing through me? That's the second question that I want us to all consider in prayer. What is the faith right now? Am I following Jesus producing through me? What impression am I leaving other people with when they encounter me? Am I projecting on them gloom and doom and distance and insecurity? Or am I projecting that true vision of the kingdom so that what they encounter is that joy bringing people in, in relationship to me, in relationship to God? Am I inclusive in that way? Do people feel comfortable and safe and secure? Is that the impression that I'm leaving with others? You know, I can tell you there are a lot of individuals in my line of work, my vocation, preachers, teachers. I listen to them on a stage and they say all the right things. And everything sounds perfect. I's are dotted and T's are crossed. But when you encounter them and when you're with them and you see the fruit and you taste it, the fruit tastes bitter. The fruit of their life is inedible. What's exuded from them is not joy. It's not communion. It's not security. It's distance, it's doom, it's gloom, it's anger, it's malice, it's insecurity, it's, it's fear. That's why Jesus tells us, don't judge a tree by its leaves. Uh, it might look like it's really great. It might talk all the right ways. We might even put a lot of energy into projecting that to the people around us in church. Judge the tree by its fruit. What does it taste like? What's your experience? What impression are you left with? Is it an impression of the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Is that what you taste? Is that what you sense when you're around those people? What are you projecting? What impression are you leaving? I think about the next generation in this church. You don't have to have kids to think about the next generation in this church because it's the next generation that we're all responsible for here. 
160 kids can be gathered on a Sunday. They're not in this building right now. God bless you parents that brought the few that are in here right now. You're brave. But 160 kids, and I think about those kids, and what impression are they receiving from us, the total community? We can tell them the right things. They're in the classes. They're going through the church motions. But they're going to pick up an impression of the gospel. And it may not be what we're saying. It may be who we're being. Maybe what we're embodying. And we can say a lot of things, but human beings are truth detectors and lie detectors. Given enough time, they're going to walk away with an impression. And will we have left them with gloom or joy? Will we have left them with fear or security? Communion or distance? What is your faith producing through you? In a spirit of confession, I want to say that, man, as I look back on my last week, don't think about your whole life. I just think about my last week with these questions in view. I've had to face the fact that there's been some bitter fruit on the tree. You know, especially with the people closest to me, they, they have to suffer when we suffer, right, the most. Have I conveyed joy? Have I conveyed communion? Have I conveyed that sense of security for my wife and my kids? Maybe I conveyed nothing. The absence of conveying something is not the fullness of what we're called into. So I look at it and I say, man, that's not the impression I've been leaving. Where are the wires crossed? Where am I missing that vision of the kingdom? Guys, I'm not a spiritual leader that's conveying to you how close I am to God to make you feel like how far you are from me and then by you know, process of deduction, oh, how far you are from God. Some people have left the church because at times I don't project myself to be closer to God than I actually am, and that's what people desire. Oh, we need somebody who looks like they're closer than they are. I am here to model for you spiritual repentance, what it looks like when all of us need to rely on the grace of God. And I hope that's sufficient. But when I see Zion, when I see Jesus, when I'm living in the new covenant, I'm comfortable enough and secure enough in communion with the Lord that I can be honest with you and you can be honest with me and we can be honest before God. And we don't have to be afraid. Even in that spirit of confession, I can go before the judge knowing the guilty verdict against me is dropped and he's going to give me help and assistance that I require in my time of need. So I'm in a time of need right now. Maybe you are too. Maybe you don't know where you're at because you haven't asked these questions in prayer. Let's spend some time right now in prayer. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, I thank you that through what you did upon the cross, your blood that was shed, I thank you that we can go before our Father in heaven without fear in fact, we're emboldened in Hebrews. We're commanded to approach the throne of grace boldly and with confidence to receive the help that we need in our time of need. So, Lord, that's been my confession. As I consider this last week, what has my following you, Jesus, produced in me? What has my vision of the kingdom produced in me and produced through me? Lord, the impression that I've been leaving, that I've been left with, it's lacking. It doesn't match the one I see here in your word. I want to be part of that city on a hill that you commanded Jesus. 
would be. And that's, that's Zion. That's the heavenly Jerusalem, the city that cannot be hidden, that just stands out and leaves that impression upon those who see it of your goodness and your character. I want the impression I leave to be the impression, Jesus, you placed upon me. So, Lord, would you give me that accurate vision again of Zion? Would you give me that accurate vision of the covenant? Would you show me just what you've accomplished? Would you restore to me joy, the nearness of your presence, the security of grace, so that I might share that with others? right now, would you, in your own time, would you ask those questions of the Lord? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart? What has your faith produced in you? And what has it produced through you? Don't think about your whole life necessarily. Just this last week, this last day, what has been the impression left upon you through your faith? Is it lacking? Is it non-existent? Is it there? Is it strong? What's the impression that's worked through you? Just spend some time in prayer, reflecting on these questions, asking the Lord to reveal to you where you are. Father, we don't want to conjure up some false fruit and just work up our own joy to exude something that isn't true to us. Lord, we want to receive the real ministry of your Holy Spirit in us, the genuine work, the genuine vision of your kingdom that's going to make that natural as a byproduct, to be impressed with that joy and communion and nearness and security and then naturally just exude that to our spouses, to our kids, to our family, to our roommates, to our co-workers. Lord, I have this vision of just a hand being pressed into a mold and that mold being the hearts of every single one of us and you leaving that impression, your handprint on our hearts. And, and then when we walk away from here, we look different, we sound different, we we embody that joy and communion and security because we're, we're genuinely different because you've left that impression on us. And I'm asking for that right now. 
by the power of your Holy Spirit, further than words can go, further than understanding can go. Lord, would you leave us with that impression of your kingdom, of what you've accomplished, Jesus, so that when we leave from this space, that same impression is carried forward into this day. It's carried forward into this week and the relationships around us. I pray for that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.